You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Do you like celebrations? Do you like them? Do you like to celebrate birthdays, traditional holidays, anniversaries? Somebody has an anniversary today. I have one tomorrow. And I always celebrate it and I give my wife a purple heart. (laughs) Do you do special things for these celebrations? The Lord in His great wisdom gave to us two wondrous celebrations that He has kindly commanded us to follow to participate in until he comes again. These celebrations are a means of reminding us of the incredible nature and the blessing of the gift of salvation. One of those celebrations is usually at or very near conversion, and one continues throughout our pilgrimage here. One, these two celebrations do not make us anything, but they do give us the opportunity to make our God great to one another, to make our God great and glorious to the world at large. They're like a provided anchor point that we can come back to one at one time and then only by memory and another time and again celebrating the greatest event in the history of the universe. So if you like to celebrate, if you like to celebrate your anniversary and you should, men, don't forget your anniversary. You can forget the right hunting location, but don't forget your anniversary. You've got a GPS after all. If you like to. These two celebrations should hold a special and blessed place in your heart of hearts as you remember day by day the awesome gift that God of the universe has given to us at salvation. So let's open in prayer. Father, as we approach these two beautiful celebrations that you have given us, let us be with open hearts and with hearts of love and devotion to you that you have done what you did that these celebrations reflect and remind us of. For without what you have done, there would be no salvation. There would be no church. There would be no future for any of us. But with it, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ, in Christ alone, we have become the elect of of God. And so as we look into those celebrations today, remind us, Lord, and give us new devotion to you because of them. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. So you thought, because I didn't come up here with any papers, this was going to be quick. Well, no, all 11 pages were up here. They were just too heavy to carry with my Bible. So we're going to be looking at the two ordinances that the Reformed Christian Church practices, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of these ordinances are founded in Scripture. We will be looking at them from the perspective of of Rome and from the perspective of the Reformed Church. The Catholic Church, before the Reformation and to this day, believes that there are seven sacraments And according to their own documents, these sacraments are to, quote, make people holy, to build up the body of Christ, and finally to give worship to God. But being signs, they also have a teaching function. They not only presuppose faith, but by words and object, they also nourish, strengthen, and express it. That is why they are called sacraments of faith. The sacraments impart grace, but in addition, the very act of celebrating them disposes the faithful most effectively to receive this grace in a fruitful manner, to worship God rightly, and to practice charity, unquote. I take my quotes from either Vatican uh, councils or from the Catholic Church 
catechism uh, so that I'm, I'm actually quoting them and not some version of what I think it says. So the seven sacraments, according to Rome, are number one, baptism. Baptism is the sacrament, now get this, that frees man from original sin and from personal guilt, that makes him a member of Christ and his church. It is thus the door to a new and supernatural life. Number two, the Eucharist. The bread, now I won't be dealing with all of the inconsistencies in the seven sacraments. I'm just going to be dealing specifically with two. But these could be some fodder for questions on the fifth. The Eucharist. The bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and confer in the Mass a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. Number two was the Eucharist. Number three, confirmation. Completes the process of initiation into the church which was started at baptism and which is nourished in the Eucharist. Number four, reconciliation, also called penance. Um, is administered to bring spiritual, excuse me, is called the sacrament of penance in which sins that occur after baptism are dealt with. I almost don't need a mic, do I? <laughs> reconciliation, number four. No, excuse, yeah, number four, which I just read to you. I don't need a mic, I need a memory. Number five, anointing of the sick, administering to bring, administered to bring spiritual and possibly physical strength during an illness, especially a time of death. Number six, marriage, interesting one, the way the Catholic Church looks at it, the simple ordinance of marriage, but raised to a sort of salvific issue in that women are, according to their reading of 1 Timothy 2.15, preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And then the last one is holy orders. This is for Catholic men who become a deacon, a priest, or a bishop and serve the spiritual needs of others in the Catholic Church. It needs to be said at the outset that none of us, none of the elders, are on a Catholic bashing mission. None of us, many of us, have dear friends who may actually be in the Roman Catholic Church. What this is about is what the Protestant movement was about in the 1500s in the first place. We have significant, doctrinal, unresolvable differences. And they are differences that decide the fate of men and women. And so that is why we have opted during this 500-year celebration of the Reformation to bring these, this information, this preaching to you, if you will, so that you can see that why we broke away from the Catholic Church those many, many centuries ago wasn't just a difference about how the color of the pencils or other things that can happen in churches. It was about how does a person become saved, among other things. Protestant theology holds the two sacraments only of the seven, and they are considered as ordinances, that is, they are commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are to be carried out by believers. These two sacraments that we will be talking about again are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism itself is both the re result of grace and a means of grace and that it symbolizes the washing away of sin. We look at the thing we are immersed in, water, and we recognize that this symbolizes the Holy Spirit who by and through the blood of Christ comes and washes us clean of our sin upon repentance and salvation, which is a package deal. So we're going to look at eight points in baptism. Um, sounds like an awful lot. I, I think a lot of preachers who when they only have four points, what they had was 23 and they condensed it into four so they wouldn't frighten people. I'm just being straight up with you. We have eight points, but they'll be quick. Very informational, very in encouraging, very uh, delightful. So out of Matthew chapter 28, which Jim read for us this morning, we come to the, one of the first things 
He says, go therefore, in verse 19, and make, this is Jesus himself. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then his first instruction is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the first point is baptism is a command. And he says that right there, that he is commanding them to go and baptize and make disciples of the nations. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he says, Repent each of you, pointing, probably pointing to the crowd, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a simple command, and one that cannot be ignored. The command in Matthew 28 is both to make disciples and to baptize them. Peter strengthens this in his great sermon to, at Pentecost, where, as I mentioned, probably 3,000, it says 3,000 were saved and baptized probably in the same day. So Peter took the command of Jesus, and he... he he instructed and he strengthened it and gave instruction to that group of people to be baptized. That's number one. Baptism is a command. Number two, baptism is a decision that requires reason and belief. Acts chapter 16, 31 through 33. Uh, these people speaking to Paul, they said, Paul said to, I believe it's the Philippian jailer, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his, all his household. The decision to be baptized is an important one and should be taken with great care. It is a demonstration that you yourself recognize that you have come into the kingdom of God and you have become one of the elect, one of God's children. So baptism is, is a decision that requires reason and belief. Number three, baptism unites. It does not divide. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul had a monumental task in dealing with the Corinthian church, especially when he wrote 1 Corinthians. They were figuring out ways to be divided over everything. And they were excellent at it. And he said to them, he said, For by one Spirit, in verse 13 of chapter 12, we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. In this epistle to the Corinthians, he had his work cut out for him to remind the Corinthians again and again of the need for them to come together in unity. They were suing one another over stupid and specious things. They were debasing the Lord's Supper when the rich would come early and consume the food that, they, that had been brought, leaving the slaves and the servants and the poor with nothing to eat. He reminded the Corinthians again and again that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts which are to unite to bring the body together, to bring individuals together, to bring the church together, and bless the church. In chapter 12, verse 11, he says this. He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And then in verse 13, he reminds them that the baptism by the Spirit is to unify them into the one body that Christ has, has redeemed himself, for himself. Baptism unites. Number four, baptism is immersion. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So they went to the river to be baptized. They didn't bring bowls of water from a, lo a local water place to the synagogue or to the houses that they were meeting in at the time. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus went into the river, John the Baptist, reluctantly, albeit, but he did baptize him. And then after that, it says Jesus came up out of the water. 
John 3, 23. John also was baptized in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized. It was necessary with a group of people, a large group of people, to have enough water to baptize them. <laughs> There's precedent for this in the Old Testament that the ordinances that the Jews practiced as well. If a Gentile came into the community of the Jews and became a proselyte, that is someone who had, had read the Old Testament, heard the Old Testament scriptures, understood them, believed them, and wanted to become a child of God by submitting himself to the God of the Hebrews, he would have to perform three acts. The first act was that he would have to be circumcised, also known as the act of Malah. Then he would have to be baptized, and that is immersed in water. And they had worked this out so that they knew exactly how much water it took in a dry situation for a, a full-sized man to be immersed in that water. And they had the amount of, I don't remember what their measuring name of their measuring unit was, but the amount of volume of water necessary to pour into a tub that a man could get himself into. Because remember, a lot of the Middle East in there is very dry. There's very few rivers. And so many of these communities would have been far from sufficient water. So they had this all worked out. Third, they would have to offer a blood sacrifice of an animal, a, a rite called Corban. They were repenting and confessing when John was baptizing into the community of God's true people, and these were the rites that they would follow <coughs> in the Old Testament times. So this is a preface to our look at the ordinance of baptism. So when John the Baptist came preaching repentance and baptism, this would not have been something unfamiliar to the Jewish men of the day and the women of the day. They would have understood both repentance and baptism. What would have been startling to the Jews of the time was the simple fact that John was calling them, the sons of Abraham, to be baptized, a Gentile act of conversion. For crying out in the sink, John, don't you know we are talking to the people of God? We don't have to perform the rites that those heathen do in order to become the children of God. But John was calling them to that. It was the, the rite that Jesus had commanded the apostles to do as well. Further, when speaking of baptism, the New Testament never uses the words in the passive sense. That is, that the, they had the water baptized onto them, thrown onto them. It always uses it in the active tense. It, it was, it, rather, the clear implication is that of immersion. Even John Calvin, the reformer, who was, in fact, a baby baptizer, advocated sprinkling babies, said, he said this, quote, Baptize means to immerse, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church, unquote. quote. Remember, as these reformers came out of centuries of false practice. They came out of, I believe, in, at least in my view as I read this history, the most important and significant ones first. The ones that, can, how is a man saved? Those are the ones that they recognized first and, and reintroduced to the church at large. The, the, the ordinances, or excuse me, the, the practices that had attached themselves to some of these things, those followed later as the church became more reformed. And I have, there's an interesting motto that the Reformation had, and we'll talk about that as we close this message up. Baptism, number five, baptism marks a new way of life and genuine commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And here is that wondrous symbolism that occurs when one is baptized. A person is immersed into the water, symbolizing the death that Christ died for us. Then that person is raised from the water, symbolizing the resurrection from dead of the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked newly risen. So we now walk in a new life given to us 
holy, and this was part of what the Reformation was about, holy at the hand of a sovereign God. And our baptism is a beautiful picture of that, and it tells the world that we truly believe there is no king but King Jesus in our lives. And many of them died proclaiming that in those days. Number six, baptism does not regenerate. Rome teaches that baptism, quote, is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word, unquote. In section 1213, here is the quote from the, catechu, the, the catechism. Baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers of her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. This comes from the Council of Florence and the Roman Catechism number 2. If a Catholic dies before being baptized, a combination of desire, repentance, and works will assure their salvation. In section 1259, for catechumens who die before their baptism, their explicit desire to receive it together with the repentance for their sins and charity assures them the salvation that they were not able to receive through the sacrament. This does terrible injustice in my way of thinking and in, I believe scripturally to by faith alone. Because what if, if during that time that you had um, either committed a mortal sin and were unable to be brought back, you died before you got to even confess your ideas, these ideas. Thanks be to God that salvation was a work of Him and Him alone. Baptismal regeneration is point to a four-part formula for salvation. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. For the purposes of this message, it would be impossible for me to go into all the points that are raised by baptismal regenerationists. I began to study them and I realized that would be essentially two, two complete messages by themselves. When interpreting Scripture, one must always filter one's interpretation through the lens of other Scripture. There are multiple verses in the Bible that speak of faith being all that is necessary for salvation. That, that was communicated this morning in the Sunday school uh, with uh, R.C. Sproul talking about it. It's all that is required for salvation. Repentance is a result of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the giving by Him of faith to us in order to believe. Because salvation is all a work of God, the pride of man must be suppressed in every aspect. It is clear that Scripture teaches that only faith is necessary. Believing we are saved, as a result of that, salvation confers responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is, in fact, baptism. And so baptism is closely linked with salvation, but it is not a requirement for salvation. Scripture carefully teaches that belief is necessary for salvation and that unbelief proves lack of salvation. Not doubt, not concerns about this or that, not a revisiting of some of the doctrines from your youth, but unbelief, this book isn't true. Jesus Christ is not who he said he was. Unbelief points to no salvation. There are many verses that teach. There is no verse in the Bible that postulates no baptism equals no salvation. But there are many verses that teach no belief equals no salvation. Number seven, baptism is for those who can trust Christ and not for infants. Rome teaches that baptism regenerates, saying, and here's the quote, Baptism is no mere symbol acknowledging one's awareness of being saved, but a sacrament that shatters the bonds of original sins and confers real grace. Close quote. They further teach that approximately the age of 12 or 13, the child is then confirmed, which finishes the work that baptism started. The early reformers taught infant baptism, and sadly, 
And this is one of those things that I mentioned earlier. As the reformers began to reform the church by the work of the Spirit of God, because they were men, they didn't get it all right. They made mistakes. And in some of those mistakes were terrible mistakes. Uh, many of the reformers con continued to believe that infant baptism was, in fact, scriptural, so much so that if you didn't believe that, you could be killed by the Reformed Church. Um, they taught that infant baptism, and sadly, they taught infant baptism and even required the life of those who taught otherwise. The Anabaptists, or the rebaptizers, were targeted and in many cases killed just for believing and acting upon that belief that baptism required understanding. Unfortunately, both the Roman Catholic Church and those early reformers participated in this. Today, the merging of, or back then, the merging of the church with the state actually facilitated that. Today, we do not have that, so there's less concern about that kind of overt damage. One of the early ideas was that baptism was a replacement for circumcision. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates this. There was never an infant's baptism spoken, spoken of in the New Testament. Circumcision was a sign of belonging to the Jewish nation. It was not a sign of salvation even for them. Then as now, faith is the doorway to salvation. Paul's epistle to the Galatians too shreds this idea because were baptism to be associated with circumcision, cir circumcision, Paul could simply have told the Judaizers that baptism had replaced circumcision. And likely, many legalist groups, one form of legalism is as good as another, they might have accepted that. But Paul never even mentions it in that context. Scripture is clear that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And even that faith is a gift from the Father. Infants are unable to exercise faith. Children before the age of reason will automatically go to the Father. And my son, Nicholas, mentioned to me that Jim has a series online about uh, the age of reason. If you, want, if you need more information on that, I would, I would uh, direct you to that. But children before the age of reason will automatically go to the Father should they experience an untimely death. We must not let our fears or external concerns override the need for proper hermeneutical exegesis and exposition. This is not a full treatment of the age of reason, the age of accountability, but suffice it to say for this morning's purposes that every, every salvation is a work of the grace of God to those who believe and those who are unable to believe by reason of age. When David lost his son conceived in adultery with Bathsheba, he made the statement to his servants who were wondering, why is he no longer mourning the loss of that son? He said this in 2 Samuel 12, 22 through 23, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood that the child was with the father. And when he passed into that, he would go to the Father and be with that child again. Number eight, baptism is a public confession of faith. Romans 9, excuse me, 10, 9 and 10. says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the last thing that needs to be said about baptism is that it is a genuine public affirmation of a believer's desire to follow the living, the living God. Today, it is much different than it was in first century Israel, first century Middle East. Today, it's very unlikely that you would lose your life for being baptized. In those days, you could lose your life, you could lose your job, you could be, a, you could be estranged from your family. It was a, a true statement of a person who has said, there is no king in my life but King Jesus. And it, it, conferred, it, it uh, 
communicated that to the community at large, and some of the community at large held your fate in their hands, at least your earthly fate. So this is what baptism is. It is a demonstration of our love and devotion to the God of the universe and a declaration that we have believed and trusted in Him and Him alone for salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. <laughs> I teach Sunday school so often that now my, I wanted to go, now are there any questions about verse? <laughs> but we won't do that. The Lord's Supper. Three points on the Lord's Supper and then Jim is going to serve the Lord's Supper after we finish. And as you read in chapter, as Jim read for us, Luke chapter 22, we often use Paul's um, exposition or, or giving of the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians. As a matter of fact, I think in every church I've ever been in, which isn't very many, but that's what is used whenever the Lord's Supper is given. But we need to remember who it was given by. Who instituted this at the Passover that Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room service, in the upper room discourse. And when the hour had come, in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said, Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he, and think about that. He's withholding from himself a pleasure until we are with him. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There is the blueprint, the, the platform, the, the method from which we derive the celebration of the Lord's Supper today. And then Paul had to revisit this forcefully. And, and so, and when he does that, he is dealing with the Corinthian church as they had completely missed the entire point of the Lord's Supper. And unfortunately, we will see how the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church also misses some of the basic institutional points of what the Lord's Supper is about. So Paul, he castigates the Corinthians in, verse, in chapter 11. He says, therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So there, are, there, are, there were four views of the Lord's Supper around the time of the Reformation. We're going to look at those and see how the Reformation changed that. Or actually brought the church back to what I think a lot of the the hidden church, the underground church, was indeed practicing. The first view was one called transubstantiation. This is the view espoused by the Roman Catholic Church that at the offering of the Lord's Supper, the actual blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ are truly present in the cup and in the bed, in the bread. Based upon this, their teaching also incorporates into the Mass the idea that the sacrifice of Christ is offered again every time the Mass is performed and the supper is presented. I'm going to read you some scriptures and we'll see what, that, what we think about that. John 19.30 Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he's on the cross. He's just about ready to give up the ghost. He's just about ready to finish the work of reconciliation on the cross. The sacrifice that Christ made for you and for me, that by faith, established through grace, in Christ alone, we come into the kingdom of God. And he said, it is finished. 
For those of you who love Greek tenses, that is a tense that has instantaneous implications. With, or it is a present tense with ongoing implications. He then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Second verse is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ again and again and again and again. It doesn't say that. It says once for all. How many times is once for all? Even, if, even in common core math. It's okay. You can answer. It's once, once. It's once. So this puts to, to rest the notion that in the Mass it is necessary to offer the sacrifice of Christ again and again. That implies that what He did on the cross 2,000 years ago was insufficient. And we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency of the work of Christ to, to bring us into the kingdom of God instantaneous, as to translate us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that sacrifice does not have to be offered once ever again, ever again. Consubstantiation. This is the Lutheran view, although they no longer use this term, and, and so it's best not to use it when talking with them. But it is that the substance of Christ is presence with the wine and the bread. Not, not, the, not the body, but the substance, the, the divinity. And that's what the early Reformed and Anglican affirmation was of the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. This view of the early Reformers rejected the idea that the physical body of Christ could be present in more than one place at one time. And so the presence within the cup <laughs> and within the bread was Christ's divine presence only. They did not necessarily reject the, actual, the idea of an actual presence of Christ in the cup and in the bread. They just rejected the idea of the physical as opposed to the divine. And then the fourth, which is the, the version that, that the Reformed Church believes and practices, and quite frankly, most of the Roman Catholic Church actually believed in at that time, is called the memorial sign, the memorial view. This is the sign view first espoused by Ulrich Zwingli. And it was promulgated by him. It should be noted, however, <coughs> excuse me, that Zwingli simply gave voice to what most people believed at the time in the first place. It was noted that there were actually priests who did not believe what Vatican was commanding. Zwingli did not see the need for a sacramental union in the Lord's Supper because of his modified understanding of sacraments. According to him, the sacraments serve as a public testimony of a previous grace. Therefore, the sacrament is a sign of a sacred, sacred thing, of a grace that has been given. For Zwingli, the idea that sacraments carry any salvific efficacy or any ability to confer salvation is a return to Judaism's ceremonial washings that led to the purchase of salvation. It was indeed the same thing as the indulgences of the time would confer upon the believers, that you could purchase your salvation or the salvation of someone else. Whereas Luther sought to prune the bad branches off the tree of Roman Catholic sacramentalism, Zwingli believed the problem to be rooted at least partly in sacramentalism itself. The only way to legitimately, in his mind, resolve the Roman excess was to reinterpret the nature of the sacraments. Pruning the tree was not enough. Pulling the tree up from its roots was the only action that could actually fix the problems, he thought and he believed. Applying his, his understanding of the sacraments to the Eucharist led Zwingli to affirm in its primary purpose as the proclamation of salvation and the strengthening of the faith of faith in the hearts of believers. Zwingli insisted that the biblical text taught that the Lord's Supper was a sign and that to make it something more violated the nature of the sacrament. However, this caution did not keep him from strongly affirming a spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharist brought by the contemplation of faith. What Zwingli could not accept 
was a real presence that claimed Christ was present in his physical body with no, no visible bodily boundaries. He said this, he said, I have no use for that notion of a real and true body that does not exist physically, definitely, and distinctly in some place. And that sort of nonsense got up by word triflers, unquote. He was calling what was believed at the time, especially in transubstantiation, foolishness, which indeed it is. His theology, though, of the Lord's Supper should not be viewed as an innovation without precedent in church history. Zwingli himself claimed that his doubts about transubstantiation were shared by many of his day, leading him to claim that priests did not ever believe such a thing, even though, quote, most all of them have taught this or at least pretended to believe it, unquote. Had his modified, his doctrine of the real presence been an innovation, it probably would not have been so eagerly accepted by the church at large. The symbolic view spread rapidly because Zwingli actually had just given voice and legitimacy to an opinion that was already widespread in the church that was being reformed. So in Zurich, the Mass was abolished in 1525. The Lord's Supper was celebrated with a new liturgy that replaced the altar with a table and tablecloth. When I was a child... Um, I was actually an altar boy. I don't remember much about it. It was a difficult time in my life. Um, and I won't go into all the details. It was just a strange time. But uh, it was very full, full of pomp and circumstance and gold and, and red tablecloths and, and vestments. And, and this is what it would have been like at the time there. And what the Reformed Church did was they removed that. And they simply replaced all of that, the altar and all of that vestment and pomp and circumstance with a simple table and tablecloth. It says the striking feature of the Zwinglian observance of the sacrament was its simplicity because the bread and wine were not physically transformed into Christ's body and blood. There was no need for spurious ceremonies and pompous rituals. The association was marked by simplicity and reverence with an emphasis on its nature as a memorial and with a, a view and a realization in the hearts of those practicing it of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ who had done this for them. And he alone had purchased their salvation. So that leads to the close, and that is uh, just a quick couple of informational or exciting things about what continued to happen through the church and continues even today. When the Reformation that took, took wings, I guess you would say, on the 31st of October in 1517, continued to spread out like ripples through the church at large, the church at large began to change. Their worship changed. With the restored devotion to the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola deo gloria, all of worship changed. The Bible was more and more being translated into the language of the common man, and with the ability of everyday folk to read the wondrous word of God and recognize that they could understand it and apply it to their everyday life, Everything changed. Worship became, became less rigidly formal and more faithful to scriptural injunctions. The preaching and the teaching was now in the common language. Although sometimes when I'm talking up here, you probably think, what language is he speaking? It'd be nice to have caption up here occasionally. The music began to reflect the changes. The way the clergy interacted with the laity changed. Slowly but surely, over the years and the centuries, more of the body of Christ began to become the unified, true church that lifts up the Savior in all of His glory. The lesson of the Reformers is clear. All of our practice must come from Scripture. All of our theology must come from Scripture, not from some self-appointed or even institutionally appointed vicar of Christ, 
It must come from Scripture. You are Bereans, and for a good reason, because God told you to be Bereans, to search the Scriptures so that you will know that those things are true. And I am so grateful on Sunday mornings when I'm sometimes teaching Sunday school and someone reminds me or, or points out something that I missed. I'm grateful for that. I do not ever want to deliver to you anything but other than the true, unadulterated Word of God. And so this is what changed in the Reformation. People had at their hands, at their fingertips, their own copy of the Scriptures. And it wasn't in a language that was spiders who had wandered through a bowl of ink and walked across the page. Have you ever looked at some of those ancient languages? That's what it looks like. Hieroglyphics. That's what they had. We must all recognize, all began to, and we must continue to recognize the authority of the Word of God. The finished, complete, perfect authority encapsulated in the Scriptures, the Word of God. These, the, thus the two sacraments or ordinances that the Lord left with us are to be faithfully celebrated. And celebration it is. Baptism is a celebration of the regeneration and the, of the salvation of a soul that now belongs to the Son of God and will live with Him forever in eternity. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the incredible gift itself of salvation and is embodied in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for the believer and it is to be observed by the believer. You must not think you need to be perfect in order to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You must simply be a genuine believer in the Son of God. And you must be keeping your accounts short so that if you ask forgiveness, it will be given. He has said that if you ask forgiveness, it will be given. What does that mean? Exactly what it blessedly says. It's not a, an escape clause, a get-out-of-jail-free card to continue to commit sin but it is a wonderful recognition that the sovereign God of the universe has chosen to give with His salvation ongoing growth and repentance to come back again and again to the centrality of the Scriptures and the need to recognize in the Lord's Supper the blessed gift that He has given. So you don't have to be perfect. Celebrate that time, understanding though He is not in the cup, He's not in the cup or the bread, those two elements are a representation to us that He is here among us and that He is in fact in us. Closing all the way down through the ages of the church, reform has been and will always be necessary. For some reason we are quite capable of straying from the truth, are we not? I wish it wasn't true. I wish it wasn't true, but I am grateful for those blessed people in my life who have had the courage to come up to me and say that very thing. That's, you're not accurate here. Because of that, one of the models of the Reformation era was, and here's that language, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbi Dei. What did I say? I had to look up the translation. The church reformed and always being reformed by the Word of God. That was one of the mottos of the Reformation, and I believe it should be a motto of the church down through the ages, always being reformed by the Word of God. Every day, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are in fact reformed step by step, grace to grace, as we become more like Christ, hopefully stepping into eternity with a robe that has been washed, nearly washed clean practically, even though positionally we are wearing the robe that was adorning the, the shoulders of the Son of God. We have His robe on us. That is what God sees. He doesn't see our dirty robe. We know we need change and we are willing to be changed. Let, Reformation, let the Reformation be of us. 
Let it be with us, let it be in us, and let it be by us. Let the Word of God continually, if we study it and obey it, bring us back to front and center, which is Christ and Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, Sola Deo Gloria. As the hymn says, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father, the gift of salvation is beyond understanding. But what we do understand, it is magnificent. And we, we throw ourselves at your feet and thank you for it. As we celebrate it through baptism and through the Lord's Supper, let it always be a reminder. Let us, let us always be reminded of that great and wondrous gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gave on the cross and through the resurrection. Let us always today and tomorrow and every day hence bow only at his knee as the, he is the king of kings. Bow our knees, I should say, only at his throne that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords and the Lord of glory. We thank you that everything is truly solely of grace, solely of faith, solely of scripture, only of Christ, and thusly to only to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.